Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Cleo Stiller, an Emmy and Peabody Award-nominated reporter who talks about her new book, Modern Manhood, Conversations About the Complicated World of Being a Good Man. In our conversation, Cleo and I will examine the ways in which men are navigating issues of dating, parenting, friendships, and money, to name a few. She hopes this book will be the catalyst for ongoing dialogue amongst all genders about issues regarding boundaries, consent, and healthy relationships. Welcome, Cleo. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I love to start with your background. I see that you have a critical theory background in education, and I've been actually looking for a book to recommend to friends and to give as a holiday gift. And <laughs> I've come, I was so grateful to have come across your book because I think it's so accessible to everyone. Mm. Uh, mm. And I'm actually currently reading Kate Mann's Gone Girl. Yes. Oh, gosh. And uh, it's just so thick to get through. Mm. And I just think, you know, your book is great for men, great for women, great for all ages. So I'm wondering, what was your intention when you first wrote this book in terms of the audience that you were hoping to target? Well, this book came about because uh, for several years, I hosted a television show called Sex Right Now with Cleo Stiller. And um, obviously a quite a provocative title, but the show itself was quite, um, had a lot of intellectual rigor and a lot of heart. It dealt with topics of health, reproductive rights, and sort of where technology and shifting cultural attitudes in our country we're changing the, you know, the intimate spaces in our lives, right? So our audience was about 60% male and 40% female, even though the editorial was somewhat skewed towards women. And so we had a lot of men who were watching a show that was for them, but also for a lot of women. And I, and I started to develop relationships with the audience that was intimate, right? They would trust us to tell their stories. And a lot of the segments we covered were actually audience generated. So rewind to 2017, which was not that long ago, but really feels kind of like dog years in terms of our culture, right? So Me Too had just hit the mainstream. Harvey Weinstein scandal happened. And I started receiving a lot of questions from men who watched the show asking, are you going to do a season on this? Because I have so much to say about what's happening right now, but I'm afraid to say anything because I don't want to get in trouble. And then they would go on to ask me a question, you know, something like, listen, I'm a good guy. Like I think of myself as a good man, but I'm single and I'm terrified to approach women. I feel like everything I was taught to do growing up is now considered creepy or I'm a new parent and I'm watching this Kavanaugh hearing and I'm just struggling to think, how am I even gonna raise a good son today? Or, um, 
you know, a lot of men actually wrote in, in the, in the context of a professional setting, like I wouldn't cop to this in real life, but I have a lot of hiring power and I don't want to hire women. I don't want to work with my female staff. So these questions were piling up in my inbox, right? And I saw what was happening on the other side of this conversation with women and survivors gathering together, talking about their stories, their experiences, and where we could go from here. And then they would say, where are all the men? Men don't care about us. We have no allies. And I know men do care about this. They're just quietly, you know, group texting each other, trying to fumble and figure it out. So this book is really an attempt to get the perspectives of many men all over the country and put it into context of what experts in their respective fields and also women and non-binary folks are also saying about their experiences so that we can get people at one table. Is there any particular age demographic you were thinking of as well? It's really interesting. I've typically reported on millennial trends because technology um, and, you know, sort of our more progressive attitudes about gender have really made that generation something of its own. But when I started reporting this book, I put a call out to all my networks, right? And, you know, then people pass it to their friend, they pass it to the thing. So I ended up interviewing everyone from ages like 18, I think is the youngest I have, to 62, because people wanted to talk about it. Men wanted to talk about it. Men in their 50s and their 60s wanted to talk about this. So I will say that initially I was thinking for millennials, but that's just not what the project ended up being. In terms of the artwork for the book and the uh, design, it makes me feel like it would be a really great fit in an academic setting, like for high school students, especially, or college students. I would love that. If anyone listening to this is interested, we would love to get our book to your class. Bring me in. There's so much work to be done with young men. So yes, love that idea. So when you were talking about the concept of men who are listeners of your show being afraid to quote unquote get in trouble, Mm -hmm. that presupposes that the news that they've read about they interpret as having been unfair, Mm, right? mm, Is that what mm, they've said? mm. Because you've also cited statistics that the actual rate of false reporting for sexual assaults is 0.5%, right? Half of 1%. And so what is it that's informing their fear? Yes, so... We deal with that in a couple places in the book, the fear of being falsely accused, because, you know, again, it's really hard to gather statistics on that, but numbers show it is low, 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 low. Um, And yet there is a massively pervasive fear among the men I interviewed, and I'm sure men I didn't interview, that they will be falsely accused. We can take a gander about where the patriarchy comes in line with that. But I think for the purposes of my reporting, I really had to deal with these men on a very intimate and personal basis. And so rather than pushing aside their fears, I asked them, right, where is this coming from? Like, what do you think about me too? Is it a a valid movement in your eyes? And the reaction to that really ran the gamut. Um, And I'll also just say it wasn't just on gendered lines. Some women also felt like Me Too had gone too far. And pretty much everyone was in agreement, right? The Harvey Weinsteins and the Bill Cosbys needed to go. 
But take, for example, the Aziz Ansari story. That was kind of the Warshock test, right? Like if how you reacted to that story tended to extrapolate how you felt about more insidious aspects of Me Too. And it was in those more micro incidents, those not micro, right? Because they're not. Um, those gray areas, I call them. I wanted to call this book the gray areas, by the way. Those gray areas, that's where you, we started to see a divide in with folks, right? Oh, like, it's just gone too far now. It's We're just complaining. Where do we, like, enough, enough airing of grievances. Like, just let, tell us what to do, right? So I empathize with that because it's really based on fear. And what I tried to do in the book then was listen to the fear and repeat back like the context for where we are to help make men feel less afraid. Did it work? TBD. (laughs) The book is still new. We'll see. But essentially what I was hearing, right, is that men are afraid of being falsely accused on the one hand, because in this society, we don't believe women, that's its own thing, right? But on the other hand, they're also afraid because they thought they were being good men a lot of the time, right? Like this, a lot of the conversations, the nuances, the gray areas, this is catching a lot of people by surprise. And I, you know, I hear from, heard this over and over again. I'm one of the good guys. I don't get it right? Like, just tell me what to do. And that's the thing. What's happening right now is there really aren't any black and white rules, right? So what I try to do is explain how we got here. So, okay, for example, take the work setting, right? For men in positions of power, and often men are in the positions of power and women are reporting into them, there's this feeling of like, I just treat my men and my female staff all the same way and it's fine and I don't see what the problem was. The problem is that if that's all you do and you don't take into consideration the historical context of the office setting or power dynamics within an office setting, then you're totally missing the full picture, right? We know that when offices and corporate settings were first set up, they were not made for women and men to interact on an equal basis. At first, it was just men. Then when women entered the workforce, they were in supporting roles to men. And even as we've tried to kind of even that out, we haven't adjusted the way we conduct business. So I heard from men, you know, it's so confusing, it's so gray. And what I offer is behaviors that you haven't previously thought of, right? So say you're afraid to meet with your female staff now because it just doesn't seem worth it. You can't do that, right? You can't be, because you're going to go then swing from like in danger of sexual harassment to like gender discrimination. Like both of them are going to get you in trouble. So if you're meeting privately with your male reports, you have to meet privately with your female reports. Consider not closing the door. Consider um, doing more group meetings. Keep your meetings during normal office hours and don't text personal cell phones. There's this feeling of this just seems like a lot of work that's okay. Like, it's okay to work harder to, to be more thoughtful and more respectful to the people that we're interacting with. So this concept, you said you were going to call the book The Gray Areas, mm. but this concept that there's this 
continuum. I I mean, I agree with that. I believe that there is. When I read the book and I distilled all of the lessons and the research that you cited, I felt like really the summary is we just need to reject the gender binary, right? That's really the answer. And the fact that there are these women that you cited who might actually think that Me Too have gone too far and men are questioning what's the definition of a good guy. Mm. That's because they're ascribing to Mm. the gender binary Mm. and how women and men are socialized to supposed to behave together and with each other, right? And especially in the courtship process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if they just reject that, like you cited in dating, for example, the concept of the hero's journey and how that shapes men's behaviors in in courtship. Mm. If we just saw each other as human Mm -hmm. and asked each other, like, you know, outside of dating, if we had a friend and we were at a restaurant, we would be wanting to ask them and expect that they would want to order their own meal. Yes. Right? Right, right. (laughs) And so why do we have to have these external expectations imposed on us or accept them? So I... I know that this book is going to be read with folks who are coming from all different walks of life and all different perspectives. And and that's because I interviewed folks from all different walks of life and perspectives. Most people who read this book are probably not going to, not wanting to throw out the gender binary. And it's, that is absolutely fine. I think that I offer information that you can take it in different levels, interpret it, how it works for you and move on. I do personally think that we should stop thinking. I offer to people that anytime you think like, I don't even know what a good man does anymore. Like, what does that mean? Reject that and think, what does a good human do? Get really clear on how you want to show up as a person and how your behavior is reflecting that. When you get really clear on that, you're able to walk forward with everything going on right now with a lot more clarity and confidence. However... Listen, I'm I'm fully aware that a lot of people really, um, they take a lot of pleasure, they take a lot of pride in their gender identity, and they do not want to lose that binary. They're still welcome in this conversation. This conversation still involves them, right? So without dealing away with the gender binary, I think there are ways that we can behave that are more helpful. So take the courtship, for example. One question that came up, and I was shocked how often this came up, but like I heard from men, I don't get it. When it comes to dates, am I supposed to pay or not? Because I feel very confused. It's like if I offer to pay for one woman, she gets offended that I don't respect her independence, but then I go on a date with the next woman. And then if I And I've learned from the first woman, so I don't offer to pay. Then she thinks I'm cheap and then she won't go out with me again. And I interviewed women about this, women who think very thoughtfully about how they show up and present in their gender. And they were also like, you know, I don't know. It's completely contradictory, but I want him to pay, even though in every other way, I'm very progressive about gender. So we're all over the map there, right? This does not help anybody. So what I offer in a situation like this is for folks to get really clear on what they want. Not because it was what they were taught to do, but do you like to pay? Do you? Like, maybe it makes you feel good to treat someone, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, right? If that's how you feel, 
that's a wonderful thing. And then you can go on a date with someone and you can say, listen, you know, I know that this is like a little bit of a hot wire issue now, but I really like to treat folks. So would you mind if I paid for you? If you're someone who likes to be paid for, get really clear on that and give your partner a hint, right? So they don't have to fumble around because it's confusing right now. Say, I'm so grateful that you, um, invited me out and I would love for you to treat me, you know, thank you very much. It feels awkward because we never talk about this stuff, but my gosh, how are we supposed to relate to each other if we're both, you know, we're all playing games? Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I think in a way it's, if you want to participate in the, um, performance of gender, right. Mm -hmm. During courtship, Mm -hmm. then make it clear what your needs are. And if someone, if a man is at dinner and is confused because the previous date rejected him paying and this current one wants him to, then he should really decide for himself what are his values. Yes. And if someone's rejecting what he's offering, then there's no alignment. And that was, so that's where I wound up with both. They were like, but then you'll go in the next set. And I'm saying, listen, if you know that you like to pay, You probably don't want to be on a date with someone who's going to not ever see you again because you didn't, right? Like you don't need to go on a, you don't need to have dates with everybody. You need to have dates with the people who are aligned with you. Yeah. And that's a good value system. So a really simple one, honestly, shocking that it came up this much, but it's a good, um, it's a good microcosm for what we're kind of talking about right now. And I think this quote by Lux Altrama, author of Faking It, The Mm -hmm. Lies Women Tell About Sex and the Truth They Reveal, is actually very applicable. She was referring to communication in the bedroom, but she wrote, why are we privileging the people who aren't comfortable communicating? If you can't communicate your desires, then you don't get to have sex that night. And similarly, if you can't communicate your desires, then maybe you're not in a position to actually have a relationship. Yes. So Lux there, first of all, I work with Lux often. She's a fantastic reporter and featured heavily in this book. But in this particular instance, she's talking about, um, you know, the other after dating comes sex. And I heard from a lot of men, you know, in this wake of Aziz Ansari, I don't really know how to make a move on a woman. Like, how do what do I do? And, you know, communication sounds so basic and so boring and people's eyes glaze over, but we really dig into it in modern manhood in quite a sexy way, by the way. And what Lux is saying, right? So I heard from guys, you know, it was like, communicate, ask her, can I, does this feel good when I put my hand here? Are you ready for this, right? Um, And some guys would say, ah, but, you know, if I ask, then a woman that I might be with thinks like I'm not confident and it's annoying. And I heard from some women, I don't want him to ask if he can do everything, right? Blah, blah, blah. And Lux's point is, why are we privileging the people who are saying, like, don't talk about it, just assume? That's a really dangerous population to privilege, right? Let's lead from the front here. Privilege folks who are going to openly communicate about what they want. And what comes before openly communicating about what you want is knowing what the hell you want, right? Because a lot of us go into these situations unsure. And absolutely, you can change your mind at any point. But not a bad idea for women and men to get clear on what they think they want to happen that night, right? Yeah. And, you know, back to my point about either rejecting or putting aside the gender binary, that's been, in a way, a crutch for society Mm. and culture Mm. to rely on to determine what kind of relationship or even if, 
you know, they get into a relationship. And so if we put that aside and we engage in self-analysis and become self-aware, identify our needs and can articulate that, that's isn't that really just the basis for any healthy relationship? And first of all, healthy relationship with self. My God. I mean, a lot of this a lot of this feeling of insecurity and fear and confusion is because we don't do a lot of, you know, gender is so socialized and we don't question it and it doesn't fit for a lot of us. It doesn't feel authentic for a lot of us. And there are a lot of contradictory messages. So by the time we get to adulthood, we're all fumbling around in the dark and that's how people get hurt. Yeah, and I think also one of the chapters that you have is on parenting. It comes mm-hmm. a little bit later. And I was thinking, actually, this should be one of the more foundational <laughs> chapters, really, yeah. because it's about you know how are we raised and how are we going to either replicate or change the ways in which we were raised. And that's so foundational to helping children develop healthy emotional lives. Like you interviewed Dan Doty from Everyman, you know, who I thought it was a little bit like, here's, I guess, a gray area. He wants to raise his young toddler son to be vulnerable and to explore all the different aspects of his feelings and his emotional life to have a rich one. And yet, you know, in a previous paragraph earlier, he talked about going hunting with a friend, right? And so that, that kind of complexity was really interesting. So Dan is an interesting man. Um, He holds a lot of areas all at once. He is in many ways a a typical man's man. He likes to hunt. He lives in the wilderness. Um, He lives pretty off the grid, Um, which I don't believe is a gendered thing, but we do perceive that as to be a very masculine thing. But he's also incredibly in tune with his emotional world. And he's raising his son to be like that. And Dan talks about how, so Dan, every man is a a men's group and they have kind of chapters all over the country. Um, And one thing that Dan stresses with parenting is that we hear from a lot of men now, right, that their fathers didn't tell them that they loved them or they didn't get touched a lot or that there was this feeling of like, don't cry, man up. We hear a lot about that, right? So a lot of fathers I had heard from, they wanted to break that cycle. But then it was confusing. Like, well, how do we do that, right? And Dan offers that it's very hard for a man to father a son in a way when he hasn't gotten really clear on himself in that way. So you can, it would be very difficult to offer space for your son to express their emotions when you don't express your emotions. So first, you have to get comfortable as a parent, as a man, being vulnerable, expressing sadness, expressing fear and um, insecurity. And I liked how Dan talked about how he offers for his son to do that. He talks about how his son is is a very emotional child and, um, you know, will have these kind of emotional fits that scare him. They make the, make the child feel sort of out of control, right? And Dan will, instead of trying to just put that fire out, he gets down eye to eye level with his son and he looks at him and he says, what are you feeling right now? And the son has now learned to say, 
I'm feeling scared. And Dan says, that's okay. And he holds him and he stays with him while his son is feeling scared. But being, teaching our, our young boys that they can communicate their feelings and put words to them, it, it sounds so basic, but that is hugely breaking with tradition for how we normally raise young boys. Yeah, and again, that goes back to you know, how we're socialized as children to fit into these um, gender norms and reinforce them where basically boys are stunted and um, unable to, or not encouraged to develop emotional literacy, yeah. right? And and then in their relationships and in culture, we have, you know, organized sports, right? That whole franchise, you know, the business of organized sports and of course, so much else in our society, like the military industrial complex, et cetera, is all about making sure that these archetypes persist. Yes. You know, at our expense, at our the expense of our relationships and our mental and physical health. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are in the conversations you've had when you've presented this research. Is it surprising to the men that these kinds of the ways in which society shuts off parts of themselves is harmful to them? Is it surprising? Or do they actively try to navigate that tension? Or, you know, is it something that they're aware of and they just sort of put aside because they want to conform and be accepted and maintain status? Well, it's all of those. I mean, depending on who I'm talking to, right? But I would say the majority of men I spoke to when I spoke to them about the research of, of boy adolescence and how we, you know, men are aware that they don't have friends. Like they notice that, right? And there are also some of them are even aware of the friends that they do have that they can only talk about sports and like only get together over beers when they're both looking at a television screen. And, and even then they might like no eye contact, right? There's some vague awareness <laughs> that that's going on, but it's kind of funny. And there's a cultural story we have about it. But in the wake of, in recent years, more open conversations about increased um, what they call deaths of despair, deaths um, that are disproportionately men suffer related to drug overdose, suicide, um, alcohol abuse. There's an increased conversation happening about mental health and men. Well, mental health in general, but let's talk about men, right? So the interviews and, and the conversations that I'm having with men right now, I would not have had absolutely not three years ago. There is a, it's, we're hitting at a very important time where it's the conversation of mental health. I mean, I think, you know, the death of Anthony Bourdain has stuck with a lot of men um, and coming at the cross section of me too. And we're talking about how men treat women and why is this? It's starting to click a little bit so that when I, I will say, as a woman, this book, I was shocked um, at the amount of pain and isolation and anger that there is out there with men. Not men who are being convicted of violent acts. Like, these are men who are fitting in in traditional ways, like, well in society, quote-unquote, well-adjusted. But they are struggling within what um, 
a man called Tony Porter calls the man box. So I have to pause for pain. I, there was a lot of collective pain expressed in this book. And um, my hope is that it's starting to click on a broader level. And if we keep talking about it and keep having these conversations, it won't just be the folks who came to me. Because every story in this book is men who came to me. They were like, oh, you, I heard you're doing this book. I have a story for you. So it will spread, I'm hoping, right, with tentacles. Um, because even people who traditionally fit in the quote-unquote man box, um, they're starting to see that it doesn't have to be this way. And they certainly feel it's harm. They're just maybe struggling to sort of take action. Or realize or even realize that it's not normal or that it doesn't have to be that way, right? So a lot of the men that I spoke to, I would say they're on this edge of either not being totally aware. Okay, so what we know is that men are socialized, generally speaking, to believe that there is one emotion that they are allowed to communicate, and that is rage. And so more and more there's a conversation and an awareness happening of like, so I just blow up and I can't control it. I go from zero to 10, right? Being able for folks to think, oh, yeah, this isn't, like it doesn't have to be like that. That I think is new and that's where the work is, right? Yeah, when you talked earlier about men in the workplace wanting to treat men and you know, subordinates and, and their team members equally, treating men and women equally. Um, I think that part of that comes from basically lack of understanding of what feminism is, mm. because it's not that we want equal treatment, it's that we want equity and parity, right? And so one of the um, guests on my show recently, her, she's an author of a book called Feminism and Business, a key idea in uh, business and society. And she she uses this metaphor for explaining the difference between equity and, and equality and uh, parity about, you know, you don't treat everyone equally because everyone has different size shoes, uh, feet, right? And so you wouldn't give everyone the same size shoe. You would give everyone the shoe that fits them. Mm. And, and so taking it a little bit further is the concept that everyone deserves a shoe that fits them, right? Everyone deserves to be treated in a way that takes into account their needs and what they've expressed overtly and what you know and can be implied, right? And so in the workplace, one, I think, common example is bathrooms. Like there's the same number of stalls, but we know yes. <laughs> from engineering that we need more stalls for women given the lines, right? And so we don't want equal, you know, bathrooms, for example, we need more. Uh, and so, you know, it would be really great if we can educate men more about feminism and destigmatize that term. And I'm wondering where that came into your conversation because it doesn't show up a lot, that word in your book. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm careful with words, right, and language because it means a lot. So another term that does not show up is toxic masculinity because when I was reporting, you can see men's eyes immediately glaze over when you say the word feminism and or toxic masculinity and or self-care. Um, so... Yes, I don't use the word feminism because it's a live wire for folks. And I'm not so interested in getting people to buy into this one word. I'm more interested in them adjusting their behavior on their own terms so that they do it right. So the concept of equality, I think, is interesting and a tricky one. And I I kind of like try to just stay out of that a little bit because what some people want, like to your point about bathrooms, right? I know some people would step in right here and say like, we should just have a couple single stall bathrooms um, for all genders and like go in and out. When in the workplace, what kept coming to mind to me with people who were like, I just want to treat all my employees the same. Um, often that was in the context of like, yeah, I just want to go golfing and have late night dinners and like Jack Daniels with all my employees. And it's like, that sounds really fun. It does. But I don't, I actually would caution against that these days. I think that there are other ways to have fun and bond and, and do really good work with colleagues that don't involve late night dinners, alcohol, and elite sports that are historically gendered and also racist. So that's how, oh, sorry, that's what I would offer there. Well, to that point, the concept of money is also one of your chapters. And I thought it was really interesting that I learned from your book that the idea of a principal provider only emerged from our agrarian past in the last 10,000 years. Fascinating. Can, right. can you explain that? Oh my gosh, yes. The money chapter was actually maybe one of my favorites um, because I learned so much in that chapter. So that chapter is framed through this thread that kept coming up with men over and over again about money and how it was surprising to men themselves how they were really progressive in other areas of their lives. But for some reason, when it came to money, when it came to whether they were providing for their family and if their female partner was making more, it was like really chafing with their notion of masculinity. And several people, I think three, mentioned Leave It to Beaver in the context of this conversation, which I, I just have to say because it's like, folks, that show went off air in the 60s, right? Wow, that's really stuck with us. But the money thing, why does money become such an important part of a man's identity? Even now, even when we have dads taking paternity leave and walking around with baby Bjorns and participating in housework, right? What's that holdover? So I took talked to Dr. Helen Fisher, who's a biological anthropologist, and she's written, I think, seven books um, on the biology and anthropology of human mating. So I asked her, called her up and was like, I have a question for you. What is the deal with men and money? Why are they so attached to that? Is that, is that an, does it have an evolutionary purpose, right? And she was like, well, let me tell you. So go back to caveman Neanderthal days, right? As Dr. Helen Fisher told me, the notion of a dual um, income house is that's how we were originally set up. So men would hunt, right? They would do big game, but that would only come back with meat about like every five days or so. So that kind of big game, that meat became a luxury item. 
But women were bringing in the daily fare, like the nuts and the even small little kills, right? So women did the daily fare, man did the luxury items. And that kind of dual income house was like how we thought how women and men were coupling up. Then fast forward to agrarian times when we started to decide we're going to schedule our food in advance. We're going to farm the crap out of this, right? That is when we started to see a split because men then were for the most part, right, in charge of plowing and the really big heavy lifting that went into the farming, chopping down trees. And women became relegated to the home sphere at that point. So they couldn't really go out and bring home that daily fare that became more of a man's sphere. That's when the notion of a single income household first emerged. And that's when men became recognized as the provider of the household. So Dr. Fisher says, Now that we have, you know, increasingly, I think um, I'd have to double check the stat on the book, but right, I think over 50% of American households are now dual income. Now that we've returned to the dual income model, we're actually returning to how we were meant to be. And I said, because I said to her, men want to be the providers. Do you agree with that? And she said, men want to be a provider. Women also want to provide. And that's how it was, right? So fast forward to today, right? What does the role of like providing mean when money, aside from the pay wage gap, perceivably likes women and men the same, right? There's no reason why women can't make more than men. Dr. Fisher recommends that we kind of try to depair money from being a man's sphere in our mind. And also remember, and this is really crucial, that providing does not have to mean only money. In fact, that's a really small fraction of what goes into making a good relationship. Providing in the relationship looks like many, many things. Emotionally providing, physically providing, doing the grocery, all of these things, right? Bringing home actual capital is just one sliver of the, um, the equation. Yeah, and to that point, I want to bring up this idea that one of your researchers shared, which is that money is a huge way in which the power imbalance is tipped to allow abuses to happen in women, right? And so to the extent that, you know, the men in the workplace uh, worry about false accusations, you know, if they were doing more to equalize pay and narrow the gender pay gap and wage gap and wealth gap, then in a way, I mean, it's everybody's responsibility, but in a way there'd be less imbalance for women to try to navigate and to compensate for potentially through whatever kind of manipulative behaviors they they might take, which, you know, I say that with (laughs) caution because there, I don't know that there are, um, and neither do they, right? They haven't really cited any, but it's this myth that persists. So, you're thinking of Sally Krawcheck, or no, no, sorry, not Sally Krawcheck, Suze Orman. So Suze Orman is one of the most renowned um, personal finance gurus in this country. And she's very famous for a book called Women and Money, which I talk about in the book because when I was 16, um, I went to college early, but I left the house and my mom handed me a copy of Suze Orman's Women and Money. And she said, read this and tell me what is, like, report back to me. Because my mom raised me to believe that, like, a good, 
a good woman, not in terms of good, but a strong woman, a smart woman, is a financially independent woman and has her own money. And um, it turns out that that has that that idea, that philosophy has a f- term, and it's called financial feminism. Although I didn't know this at the time, but I remember at the time thinking. I don't want to read this book and I don't want to know about this stuff, but I felt the impression of how important it was that I, as a woman, was always financially independent and that that, I hate to say safety blanket because that implies something negative, but that, that, that was very important, right? And I interviewed several other women for the book who are of my generation, and they also grew up with that notion of financial feminism. So where does financial feminism butt up against this sort of like hangover idea that men are supposed to provide financially? Suze Orman was on a panel two years ago and on that panel that I was sitting in on, she said that when she was watching Me Too explode and she was hearing these conversations about women coming forward, about being abused in the workplace, it hit her. This Of course, there are so many other parts of this. There is the inexcusable behavior of men first and foremost, but there is also the fact that women are financially tied to these situations that they should be able to walk away from. And it actually made, she was in semi-retirement and she came out and redid her updated women and money for 2017 because of that. That idea that women often are caretaking, right? They have a family to take care of. Um, And even if they don't, there are many reasons why women are financially tied to situations that they can't walk away from. And that, an awareness of that for women is incredibly important and empowering. But if we can also get men to be aware of that, like you, you know, you can't see me because I'm on a podcast, but I'm like head exploding thing, right? Because there are a lot of men who do want good things for women. Well, I hope that this conversation has ignited an a, uh, interest in our listeners to go out and buy your book and read <laughs> and explore more of the conversations you've had. We've come to the point of the conversation where I ask every guest a series of questions uh, that I've adapted from inside the actor's studio. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Um, what is at stake? I mean, the highest stakes, of course, are lives. It's life and death. In modern manhood, I deal specifically not with topics that will impact on a life or death scale. I have colleagues who do that that very well. But I think um, we also have this belief that if we're not talking about life and death, that it doesn't matter. And that is not true. I offer that the gender binary as we currently know it, without interrogation, without reflection, without rethinking what parts of it work today and what do we want to take forward, I argue that it hurts women and men in their every, everyday lives. Um, And I, again, I've mentioned this before, but I encourage folks to, anytime your impulse is, I don't even know what a good man does anymore. Like, does a good man compliment her outfit? Does he hold the door for her? Does a good woman show up and do this? That's, shh, quiet that part of your mind and instead ask, what does a good person do? Does a good person hold the door for the person coming up behind them? I think yes. 
And if you don't want to hold the door for the person coming up behind you, that's probably good information for you to have about yourself. What gives you hope? There are people coming to this table that were previously never going to come. So there is some level of, of heightened awareness now. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? More self-reflection, more openness to being uncomfortable. I urge men in the final chapter of this book, I, we, I talk a lot about atonement and forgiveness. And we have a real aversion to that in this society, right? We either don't like to apologize or we want to do it quickly and get it over with. And what I offer to folks now is the conversations we're having are decades or more overdue. And to get comfortable being uncomfortable, you are going to fuck up. You are going to hurt someone's feelings. You surely have in the past, even if you didn't realize it. So please think before you speak, think before you act in ways that you haven't before. Listen when people are telling you that something you've done has hurt them and get really clear. What were the motivations behind that? What, what didn't you see? Could you have done better? Then apologize, apologize, my God. And then don't do it again and move on. Thank you so much, Cleo. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Music